So I'm sitting there and it's in color. And then all of a sudden, at some point, it switches to black and white. So I'm like... Arbitrarily, like... Like, like yeah. arbitrarily. And I'm like, oh, that's genius, man. Like, they they sucked me in and then now they're fucking right, me out. Right. And they're, they're doing this and they're doing that, right? And so I'm, I'm watching the movie. Great how much room we give people. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I'm like, I'm like I, at this point, like, I just made my first short film. I think it was like 2001. Right. Probably 2001. And I'm like, oh, fuck, the, yeah, oh, the, the Coen brothers are great. I didn't even notice it, but then I noticed it, then I didn't notice it, and it was just, oh, that's great, and right. whatever, you don't whatever. think about it until it don't changes, think, and what does it mean? What does it mean, and everything. Anyway, so it turns out what happened was they shot it in color, mm-hmm. and for some distribution, so some of the reels went European out. European distribution, I thought, only. Some of the reels got mistaken, real ones so a whole were in color. in color. A whole reel of the movie was, I saw John Polito in color, I saw the, the tur- and the only way I found out was, when my friend went and saw it the next night and said, wasn't that great when you see that spinning hair thing and you know that it's color, but you see it in black and white, so it, it signals something in your head. And oh, where is it that he said that, by the way? What are the odds that your friend I, I, bring I, that up? It, it bring that up. And I, said, and I said, what are you talking about, dude? Like, I, I saw it. it. It wasn't color. That was the whole thing. Was It switched from color to black and white at some point. And he's like, no, the whole thing was black and white. I'm like... Crazy story. What are you talking about, right? So that is. Was it turns, at like Toronto Film Festival? No, it was at a it was at a theater in Toronto. Oh my god! They so they're running it every two hours. Every two hours the they were running reels. it. What uh, the wrong reel? And how I, did it look in color? Well, you were thinking like it looked funky, it, looking, weird design. No, 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 no. Uh, well, I wouldn't have noticed that the that the actual colors of the suits or the costumes of the backgrounds didn't line up. I mean, it still had. Uh, okay. So that's something cohesive? I'm, okay, I'm so yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I got the sense that they just sort of were like, we're going to shoot on color film, we figured out our process, we're styling and, and designing the movie for black and white. Yeah. Which, I don't know how you do both. Yeah, right. it, 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 was, it was pretty much, like, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I noticed the most from going back and watching it in black and white was there's a two-shot at the, um, of, 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 Thornton and the guy who works for the, the guy who he works for. The, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what's her, what's her name? Married to to Ethan, uh, or married to, married to Joel? Francis, 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 the guy who plays Francis McDormand's brother, because mm-hmm. they're brothers-in-law in the right. movie, okay. and they're just sort of sitting there in the shop, and there's a wide shot of them with I think the window is is camera right, and mm-hmm. and just the shop, and they're just sort of sitting there reading, at the end of the day. That shot in color was like, uh, okay, it's a it's the it wide shot, right? Yeah. It was fine. When you see that in black and white, you just, it just, it, you know what I mean? It's just like yeah. it's jaw dropping. And also the contrast in black and white is so different. That was, know? that was the thing was the contrast. Was that, the, you asked me what it was like? Yeah. It, it was like, it looked good. It looked, yeah. I mean, the lighting was. It didn't was bring be- attention to itself. It didn't bring attention to itself. But the lighting but the contrast. too, because like he doesn't, he doesn't light that way normally. There's backlights and eye light, like there's shaped light, which must feel. I mean, at that point in his career, it, there wasn't such a definitive Roger Deakins style. Right. But if there is, that certainly goes against it. It's the it. color. Well, it wasn't the. I mean, my, the friend, the friend I watched it with when we were analyzing everything on our own, mm-hmm. just to analyze shit, yeah. said that if you look at every frame, he's always alternating dark light, dark light. Dark, is that the whole? So that yeah, is. Yeah, that's yeah. that's part of that design, but right. also just within the frame, everything's separated by tones, you know, and by edge lights, which is such a different. I mean, I shot a lot of black and white, and you have to think about everything differently. What did you shoot in black and white? Years of music. My first music videos were like going back to Cali with LL Cool J, which is a black and white yeah. 35. The Pogues Fairy Tale of New York, which is a beautiful black and white 16, like classic 
lit, you know, black and white. It's the first thing I shot was that video. First that was the first thing you ever yeah, was straight out of I mean, film I'd done some, like, tabletop and product stuff, but that was the first piece that stood alone. That's going I back shot. to, what, 90? Go one decade early. Oh, no, really? Are you serious? 86. Thanksgiving You don't Day. look old enough to have shot something in, in 1986. I did everything a little early. I started when I was 17 on movies. I did Raging Bull when I was 18 as a camera trainee. I did a movie called The Wanderers when I was 17. The first movie was The Wanderers. You were a camera trainee on Raging Bull? I was. Every frame Michael Chapman, correct? Yeah. The camera operator who invited me onto this movie, The Wanderers, which is a Phil Coffin movie that Chapman also shot, yeah. um, went on to Raging Bull after that. So I went with him two films in a row. And then I did a film called Dress to Kill with the Palma. Oh, yeah. Well. So those are my, those are my three training. Were, were you in the room for the shower scene? I was. So what do you and do? That was, that what do you do besides sit like this? I actually took the girl who did, was the body double on a date. <laughs> that's what you do. <laughs> now we know How's you're a liar. Answer? Okay, that's no, her it. Name, let's, I'll let's tell get, you who she is. Her name was, I actually remember it. Her <laughs> name was Vicki Lynn Johnson. She was a previous penthouse pet. She did Angie's body double work. Yeah. Sad to say that wasn't actually Angie naked in the movie. Are you kidding me? And I took her on a date to some like, you know, tavern on the green industry party thing. And you got no nookie. It wasn't no. about nothing. It was just like showing it, up with it, it, it was enough. Yeah, come yeah. on. Come on. Yeah, let's 17, 18 years old. I got a penthouse pet. That's amazing. Me the, uh, the good that must have been, that's like out of something out of Howard Stern, actually. It was a strange, I went to that party because I got hired as the still photographer for this like celebrity. Uh, it was it was a casting director, Sylvia Fay, very yeah. famous casting yeah. director. Yeah. It's like 50th anniversary in the business or something. And for some reason, I think they called the set photographer on Dress to Kill. She couldn't do it. She was friends with Sylvia, so she said, you do it. I was getting no money for these movies. I was making 50 bucks a week, so she was like, they'll pay you, you know, $500 to shoot. shoot stills. So A, I wasn't a still photographer, and B, I had no idea who anyone at that party was, and the whole deal is to, like, know who everyone is because you're taking their pictures that everyone wants to see later. So I showed up with a penthouse pet and just took pictures of everyone that would stand still and handed the <laughs> film over and left. I know. I'm not I sure just, how that I just, turned out. I just have to ask, Alexis, is that camera, is the, 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 the pole in the shot? It can't be possible. Are you one of one million? It would look so cool if that was in front of his face. I, I don't know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> are you on a one million millimeter lens? Well, what are you shooting? Really? Is that a 5D? What is that camera? No, no, these are, these are, we, go up, we go up above the 5D, Tell man. Tell me what you're shooting. Reb, T4 eyes. I'm catching up. I just bought a 5D. I'm way behind you guys. You just bought a 5D? Just bought a 5D. You would make stuff look great in a 5D. So it's never let me go also a, an actual, like like a real landmark for you? Yeah, I mean, I it's different than anything I've done, and it feels to me like the culmination of a lot of things that I've worked on and cared about. I mean... Tell the story. that Just, pit, just give me the log line of the movie for the camera. Um, the log line of the movie is that you follow children through a sort of off-kilter British boarding school in a period that's not quite defined, somewhere in the 70s mm -hmm. is the assumption. And partway through it, you discover, as they do, that they're actually being raised to donate organs and that they've perfected cloning at this point and that the way that they're dealing with this is needing organs by cloning children and then there are these clones. So if you're, I guess the, the book goes deeper into it, but the premise is that Either if you're wealthy enough to have yourself cloned when you're young, then you have a spare parts version of you, or they're just spare parts that they can transplant. 
but the kids find out at like 12 or 13 years old. And so the movie is essentially... It's a drama with a science fiction backdrop. It is. And the science fiction is just sort of the device by which you arrive at a story that's about a life compressed. You know, it, the thing that really drew me to it was not at all the science fiction, but the idea that even if you knew you were going to die at 25, you could still live a life that had all the arc of a life in it. And there's a great line at the end of it that sums that up, which says um, the main character who's about to go into the donations and ultimately die says something along the lines of, um, it, it occurs to me in the end that we're not that different from the people whose lives we save, that when it's over, we'll still wonder what it was for and wish we had more time. And that was the line that just sort of stuck. You. It made me feel yeah. like that's a worthwhile thing to explore. Actually, really interestingly, there's a script that I'm, very close to shooting right now, which uh -huh. I, like, I don't want to say too much about, yeah. but, but the thing about it that's interesting is that it has a completely different twist on a very similar idea. And I just, I like movies that relate to the human condition in some way and that you hope everybody will find a connection to that likes the movie. Right. In, in more than an entertaining way. I mean, I think beyond that, there's a, a thoughtful way, that, way. A thoughtful way in a way that feels personal. You know, I think that's what people walk away from movies saying, I love that movie because something feels personal in it. So I look for that. I think as a DP, you kind of owe that to the project. Let's talk a little bit more about Never Let Me Go. How, you know, obviously at some point in the movie, effects do become necessary, whether with the, I think you see the same kid twice a lot of the time or whatever. Um, Is that true? Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> obviously at some point in the movie, effects become necessary. Mm -hmm. But, w well, I, I want to tie this together with your short, the short that you made with Spike mm -hmm. Jones. Ah, okay. uh, what's it called? It's called I'm Here. I'm Here. Which was just fantastic. I was just yeah, watching. I, I was just watching. I'm just watching like online. Okay, I'm Kevin. Got to you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden I come across that. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch this. And then I'm like, why haven't I seen this? You know. That's recent? Just before this interview? Yeah. Well, no, it was probably two weeks ago. Oh, that's so cool. Well, we yeah. reached out. That thing got a lot of play. I mean, being Spike's film, it got out there. But I put it in its entirety on my website because people kept saying, I can't, you know, in other countries, they couldn't get access to it, or you have to put your birthday in every yeah, time you look awesome. at it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's So was that special. just Spike Jones just going, like, I really want to make this little film, and I'm going to go do it? It was Spike Jones going, I just spent three years making Where the Wild Things Are. I would like some spontaneity. So Spike's idea of spontaneity was to do a 30-minute film Short. in four and a half days. He shot that film in four and a half days, and it was probably as far away from the way he'd been working on Wild Things as you could get. Yes, it had animation and costumes and cumbersome things that stood in the way of just shooting a narrative, but right. for him that probably felt very shorthand compared to what he was doing. Um, you know that Andrew Garfield is the male robot. Yeah, well, you can talk about the voice. Yeah. And, and maybe a little bit of the physicality. But like, yeah, the physicality, if you pay attention to it, it makes perfect sense, especially now that people are seeing him in Spider-Man. He was a gymnast as a kid, and he's phenomenally agile. Oh, is he really? Oh, yeah. He's, I didn't know that. I mean, Dennis Leary, who's a friend of mine, said that during a scene, uh, I was talking to him about Andrew and saying, how, how do you like working with him? And he said, there's a scene on Spider-Man where they're standing near each other and it's a fight scene and a fight breaks out. Yep. I, I can't say I've seen the movie, but yeah. he said he's standing like four feet from him and the beginning of the fight, he figures, you know, they're going to move and they're going to cut and start breaking it down and choreographing it. The stunt people come in and he goes... You know, the first moment of it, all I see is Andrew, like, upside down, backwards in the air above it. <laughs> like, he totally ruined the take because he was just like, what is he, 
what's that? And it turned out, you know, Andrew's a gymnast and he was doing all of that stuff himself right. on that film. But let's let's talk specifically about I'm here because it's like it's a sure I just want, I think it's a beautiful example of your photography. It's a beautiful example of great filmmaking. It is great filmmaking. It's not an example. It is great filmmaking. But okay, so first of all, the concept for this short is that some nondescript, not future, but you know, science fiction version of Los Angeles. There's two types of people out there. The robots with effectively really rudimentary heads and like early seventies. Early seventies, yeah. but with somehow malleable faces. Mm -hmm. um, do the menial jobs in society, and there's this wonderful sequence at the beginning where you paint the world by just virtue of going on a bus right. and looking out right. the window, and we see that basically the robots are kind of the downtrodden a little bit. Are you guys okay with this window? That this is blowing open and changing your light a bunch. I just noticed that. He's blocking it. Okay. I'm, 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 right. but thank you. We'll go back. I just saw the light change. I got all, I got all on edge there. Sorry. <laughs> Retake that. You just can't. You just can't. <laughs> you, can't. You, you can't. They can't. You can't. It's, it's again. my fear because I've been under the scrutinizing eyes of Regis No, no, no. I was just, I didn't want your light to be ruined by something. Speaking of which, nature. i got to tell you, you are beautiful lit right now. Yeah. And his head is in front of the door for me. That's all that light's doing is lighting him. him. It's got nothing <laughs> Not to do with me. It's got yeah. nothing to do with me. <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you Absolutely. should. You should. I, most DPs do that, don't they? They just light them. Yeah, make like, sure it looks good by what, the camera. What's make that sure look? The publicity yeah. stills look you just do for the director too. Just put a big 10k right next to the yeah. booth. What's that yeah. for? That's for you. Yeah, make I'll sure that everyone on FaceTime looks good. That's all. <laughs> so, so um, there's this wonderful sequence showing the robots being mean, being second class, second class citizens. Right, just that whole setup. And then there's this lonely single robot works at I think the library if memory serves. And he meets this girl, robot. And they sort of strike up a relationship. And next thing you know, it just becomes kind of on its ear as she keeps getting into accidents. He keeps giving up more of himself for her. Beautiful relationship. Uh, al almost, you know, a combination of romantic comedy with a Kuleshov effect because these faces are so, you know, yeah. you sort of input, put the... But the style of photography was so... I don't want to use the word loose... It just felt natural, and at the same time, you had like this color, this warm, constant color palette that was kind of, with a little bit of hint of green, if I'm not mistaken, through the whole thing. Because there's a lot of fluorescent lit interiors and industrial spaces, and you know, spikes. T and I had never shot with spikes, so this was our first. Thing How did you get the call for that? You just we've known each other a long time, and he visited the set of Never Let Me Go. He and Mark Romanek are good friends. Yeah. So when he was visiting in London, uh, he went in the edit room one day and Mark just showed him dailies, basically, because we were early in shooting. There was nothing cut. I don't think there was. But he went out and started telling people how amazing he thought the film looked. And he met Andrew Garfield there. And so we had just wrapped. I think we wrapped in June in London. And this was maybe late July. So I think it was fresh in his head. He decided Andrew was right for it. So Andrew and I just got to go onto that together. It just just went. Yeah, and, and I'd always wanted to work with Spike, and he had not really been working with anyone but Lance for a long time. Yep, who was an Lance amazing... Lance was on vacation, I yep, think, and yep. it, just, it just fell in. And we'd known each other easily 10 or more years. So you had to work fast on this. We had to work really fast. I mean, the, f the funny story about that is that it started out as a six- or eight-minute film, I think, with a six- or eight-minute script. And 
we had four and a half days to shoot it. Six or eight, and then Spike yeah. started writing. He started writing, and he kept writing. I mean, he, he wrote that thing completely, and he's normally written with other people, so that was new for him, as well as a love story, if you think about it. Yeah. So it started to develop, and it got bigger, and uh, part of the prep was giving him time to do that, and then we would go and look at locations, but he wanted to get it written before we knew what we were prepping. So I was here standing by and at one point the script became almost finished and he was sending updates but it became almost finished at like 25 pages and I remember the moment when I said to Vince his producer so how much time are we going to have to shoot this and he said Four and a half the days. same yeah. so that's what the job became about in many ways was there were locations on that film that Spike and I pulled up got out of the car figured out how to shoot it and then shot it all in one visit like there was no pre-scout there was there was a night shoot in a parking lot, which needed to be pre-scouted, yep, so we found that location. Sort of walking yeah. around. That was which beautiful. Was, yeah, I love how that scene looks. Yeah. Romantic and yet really kind of Natural. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was actually interesting and lonely because I guess it's kind of like has like that... Pools of... Yeah. And there's a really interesting color in that, which um, I put a big, big light up over them and made it that color, but there were lights in the parking lot that were a similar color. and. You know, I kept reading them and trying to match them with gel. And uh, we put a balloon light up and put, I think there were six layers of gel under it to get it to match the parking lot. It was the really? weirdest color. So and you're saying in order, you actually had to try a little I bit of magenta and a little bit of this. Layers and layers of full blue, multiple full blues, lots of plus green. I mean, normally you're putting like a blue light with a little more blue and a little green to get it in the zone of vapor lights. Whatever those lights were, they were so extreme. They were like purple and green mixed. And we went for it, and I wasn't able to test it, but that's that's the, what I graded. And it, like, and, and it worked. I it, love how it looks. It's so unique. And that balloon, okay, but when you put in that many layers of, of gel, it's going to cut down by, pro, what, three, four stops? Easily, yeah. I mean, we went for a big tungsten. No, we probably went for an HMI balloon, like multiple 4Ks. It was big and it was very bright, but you know there were towers like 50 or 60 feet tall with those lights on them that I wanted in the background of the shot, so you understood where this light was coming from. And it's a little foggy, so there's like this glowing shape around them. And then I just wanted to be able to supplement it, so it was key to get to the same color, otherwise you got this obvious movie light in the foreground. Talk about working with Spike on that. Um, and I'm, ju I'm just purely curious, how much? I mean, how much of, uh, you've obviously worked with multiple directors, multiple situations, uh, how much of the composition and the framing that you end up wanting to use in terms of working with Spike was like sort of like just, hey, wouldn't this be great? And, or is he just dead on, he knows exactly what he wants? No, he's one of the more collaborative people I've worked with. So what's interesting, interesting is that you're aware you're stepping into a, you're, you're stepping into a relationship that normally is very familiar he works with the same people all the time. So the short film was a chance for him to work with other people, and that's both good and bad because you know you don't want to come in and reinvent things. Yeah. So um, what I figured out with him is that he hires you because he thinks you're right for it, and then he gives you a lot of room and asks your opinion. If he doesn't like something, he's really capable of saying, what if it was this? I, I only remember one specific thing on that film where we had one shot and he had something clear in his head. And I, I lit the shot and framed it up. It's a moment when the two, when the girl and the boy robot run across the frame into the dance club. Yep. It's a very quick shot, but he really had something clear in his head. And I framed it up, and it was not what it he was did. like knees up on a longer lens through a crowd of foreground, panning. 
And I remember him saying, no, it should be, let's, let's see all of them. So we went wider, right. we framed and adjusted the foreground, and that's what's in the film. So uh, I, like, I would like to think that as long as he was happy with compositions and shots and coverage, that it didn't become a back and forth. We did get to prep a lot of it together and go to the locations, talk about how we were going to cover scenes. And I feel, um, because we hadn't shot together, part of that was for him to just make sure we're on the same page and to not leave everything up for the last moment. The things that we couldn't scout and that came up or changed, a lot of locations changed at the last moment, we did by the seat of our pants, sometimes with two cameras in opposing directions. Oh, really? In day exterior. So you got someone in front light, someone in back light. The scene where the car pulls up and the girl meets the boy robot on the street. Yep. We it's a beautiful shot it like sequence. this. As the sun was dropping, you can see the ball going down in the background of the girl's shot. Yeah. In the front, you can see front light on him. The camera shadows are like two inches out of frame. Next, you know, we, we barely pulled that off in the moment we had. So for things like that, you just go on to autopilot and assume that all the other things inform these things with the same choices. Right. And and that's what I look for anyway with a director. I mean, Bennett Miller and I and Capote got to the point where I don't remember talking about shots while we were shooting the film because we'd prepped it, we'd done what work we could do together in advance, and then it was sort of a divide and conquer. It's like, he's got a huge script and actors that every day come in with massive amounts of drama to, to do in front of the camera, and we've kind of talked about it, and if he sees something on the monitor he doesn't like, he says, what about this, or we should do that, but otherwise it goes unspoken because you're on the same page. And I think that's the best way to have a relationship with the director. So was there, time, there, there may have even been sequences or scenes or moments where when you were shooting, I mean, we, we're, I want to hold off on Capote for a second. We'll get back to it. But that being said, moments or scenes where you're shooting with, with Bennett on Capote where he didn't even necessarily look at... He always had the monitor. But, yeah. you know, he's, a, he's a director who likes to be in the eyeline of the actor. So he'd be next to camera. He'd usually have a little monitor near him. So he could check the frame, but you don't have to look at the frame all the time. He doesn't tend to watch performances on a monitor. He tends to watch, watch the actor, actor yeah. and, uh, and check the framing. But Capote doesn't have a lot of camera movement. It's not like he's watching how the shots are moving. He's looking at the frame. He's looking at the light. In if he really doesn't like it, he'll say something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic to hear that kind of... Uh, so, so then, given that you have a lot of rope in both those situations... What's your approach to how you, is it just whatever feels right, or is, are, you, are you thinking in terms of cutting, are you thinking in terms of? Both of the above. Okay. I mean, it's what feels right to the script, it's what feels right to the locations, it, it's what feels right to all the conversations I've had with the director. For instance, in Spike's case, everything was picked to feel, to feel as much in that vein of like timeless anywhere L.A. Like the guy gets off the bus okay. and you go like, this could be any time of year, anywhere in town. Like You've seen it so many times, you don't question it. So we wanted things to not be romanticized or made beautiful for the sake of being beautiful. We wanted to kind of find the beauty in the sparseness of our frames without altering the world. Right. You know, right. That, that's, that's the approach for that film. And so uh, th I got to keep asking because yeah. it's, like, it's, like, it's fascinating to me. It's, that film was fascinating to me. You're reading this thing. You know it's on a low budget, obviously. You know it's on a low schedule, a tight schedule, obviously. You have to do a science fiction piece in an otherwise completely relatable world. Right. Right. So just in terms of practically, 
what were the actors walking around with? Just a basket on their head and then no, things were painted had, in later? They actually or? had the entire face, um, but without the eyes were cut out so they could... See. Well, actually, they were looking through the mouth. If you look at the size of the head, right. the, the mouth was a cutout so that they could see through it. The eyes were just blank. And, and then put little CGI lights. put smiles and... Exactly. Uh, and it's two-dimensional. The animation is 2D. So the, the panels are flat, and you know if you look at it from the side, it's still flat animation. In other words, there's no lips. There's no three-dimensional right. shape. Yeah, to the no, mouth. no, totally. Yeah, and no, same no. with the eyes. But it's All a box on their head. It's a box, and it's, yeah, it's yeah. a full costume. Like It had right. the hands, and it had the arms, and when we take the arm off to change it, it's actually a piece of, you know, piece of robot clothing that went over the real arm. And so what's done in post is to clean up whatever didn't work, but... But most of it's in camera. Most of, it. most of it's in camera. I mean, yeah. they're, they're acting in these costumes. They're completely shoes all the way up. I mean, the eyes and mouth were really all that was meant to be added. There were things that were cleaned up along the way. We had put little LED lights so that, you know, there was, there was actually a video camera inside at one point. That picture. Yeah. That Must be getting windy, huh? Damn grips. <laughs> grips! We don't have any of those here. We don't need the stinking grips. This is this is the part that we edit. We, we wait, wait, wait till this. It'll be an interesting little change, but I'm just gonna roll with it. Okay. Well, I'll just I'll just talk about it then. No. Now that we're in the daylight for yeah. a portion of the interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we've been sitting here for six hours to go from up. nighttime to day to the sun's finally risen behind us. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we've got, oh, it just, I just feel it's so much exhausting. Oh, it, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. It was exhausting for you. Imagine yeah. for me. Being grilled overnight. Over <laughs> Why are you doing this website? Why are you doing this? Um, so anyway, so... So, practically speaking, a lot of it is done in camera with touch-ups later. Obviously, when body I would say are, I would yeah. say all of it in terms of costumes, and that made what the actors had to do quite difficult. I mean, that's a hot box on your head. You know, it's a lot of weight. It's I mean, there were periods of time when you had to pull those things off and just let people breathe. I, I think I can I think, I, I can think of worse things than having a hot box on your head. By the way. Yeah, yeah, just just a yeah, nice. To, I, to, I won't. Uh, I don't yeah. think I'll look for it now. But yeah. I believe I have a picture of Andrew on my phone still, like sitting on the side of the set somewhere with the box in his hands, just breathing. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was fairly. It was hot. It was hot. in the middle of summer, and yeah. you know they were running around quite a bit up in Griffith Park and stuff. So, the dance sequence, um, the, no, the concert sequence where mm -hmm. she first gets falls a, apart. Falls apart. Yeah, <laughs> very clever. Um, uh, was that, I mean, did, we, we, did you have enough toys to make it, you know, I mean. Yeah, we, you know, we, we approached everything the same way on that film, which is we know what we absolutely need and we'll keep going to see how much more we can get. So that was a live band. It was a big crowd. I lit the room, sort of the whole room, so that I could shoot in any direction in advance of getting there. I think it was our second or third location for the day. So we had to run in there and be ready. And we had all the hallway stuff and the, the stairway was yep. changing. And that's all in one-third of a day's shooting. So the concert itself, we took two cameras. Spike took one and I took one. 
we went uh, into the crowd. I brought a little bit of supplementary fill light, like a handheld fluorescent, that I could just carve her out of the darkness if she got too lost. But basically, it was practical. So there's a show on stage. There's a little bit of ambience for the room. The show on stage, I designed to have these pulses of ultra-bright white light. Yep. Knowing that that would carry into the middle of the room. The whole scene we care about is in the crowd. So I sort of set the exposures so that when those lights pulsed, you could find things, and when they went out, you were kind of lost. And there was a strobe in the darkness so that you would never be totally so lost. So a lot of it was in camera, like as far as... That's all in camera. All in camera. I mean, I balanced the room so that there could be a practical concert going on with a practical light show and with a little bit of supplementary fill for the times I needed it. Basically, you could shoot the room. And, and part of working that way is to know which directions to shoot. You know, there would be angles in there that didn't work. If the camera gets between the light and the person you're shooting, then you have a problem. So it was kind of blocked to always stay on the 180-degree the side that the light worked for. But awesome. I, I like to work that way. I mean, I have to say, and Mark Romanic pointed this out to me before, we did Never Let Me Never Go, go yeah. and I always thought it was a really interesting observation. He said, looking at my work, he said, you know, the thing I like about you and the reason I think you're right for this is that you tend to like the spaces, not the people in them. Harris Vides. Yeah. I've seen it in other people's work and recognized it. I never analyzed my process until Mark said that. I never realized, yeah, he's right. I'm actually really adverse to that thing of, I mean, you have to add or subtract or change light for someone in a room, but if the space doesn't already feel organic to where the light comes from, then carving that person out doesn't help. They're still in an, in uh, it's it's funny you say that because when we interviewed Gordon uh, Gordon Willis and I'm not name dropping I just mentioned yeah. I just I can't stop thinking about the interview because I'm still waiting to see it it's not it's coming it's, it's coming it's coming it's coming all I can say is I I hope other people find it as as uh, I can't fascinating as I did because he was just so clear about that's, that's an articulate man if ever oh yeah. he was so clear but he just said he just he, I was saying like you know. About, you know, like, for example, with the Woody Allen and Tony Robbins walking down and, you know, the, the track with them. And Annie Hall says, is there any lights there? And he goes, no. And I said, well, what, you know, what about eye sockets? Or, I'm just asking because I'm, I'm not a DP. I have no yeah. interest in being one. I just love hearing what you guys do. Yeah. And so he was like, no. He's like, if you're, shoot, if you're outside and you're shooting on the flat side of the street and someone looks like shit, I can't fix that. I can't change right. that. He's like, you know... Picking a location or yeah. picking a time of day or picking an exposure or a lens, all is part of the grand design of the image. Right. And so if you can't control the light, you can control the direction you shoot in. If you can't control the direction, you can control the lensing or the focus or, you know, there's all these tools and all that matters is do you like the way it looks in the end and does it feel like it should feel for this moment in the story? Yeah. The rest of it is just like the more you know and the more things you've tried, the more flexible you can be, right. you know? I think the idea is never to impose that. You know, it's it's if you're if you're telling a story that's driven by a narrative, then the narrative should drive everything. Right. So that's my version of the narrative. It's my interpretation of it, and a different DP would have their own. But I still think you have to serve the, the script. Right. Right. Last question about the short, uh, about I'm here. Um, you're talking about, okay, so again, we're shooting a science fiction movie that's kind of set in as close to L.A. as L.A. is today as possible. Yeah, we didn't really do anything for the location. Is there any nerve-wracking thought that goes into how am I going to sell the look of, how do I merge a, this type of a content in this type of a backdrop 
when we're not, you know, we're obviously not doing minority report here. Right. Well, no, not, not nervous because, first of all, it's Spike's vision and he was figuring it out as we went. But I have huge trust in that. And yeah. the vision was everything is the same except robots have been integrated into society and, and they're already kind of run down and mundane and it's not high tech at all. So, you know, where they live and what, I mean, the, the apartment has no furniture in it and yeah. what, the, what that little charging box that he plugs into is yeah. like, it's all kind of like early analog, you know, as primitive and, and uninteresting visually as it can be. It's all in like almond colors and beige and, yeah. you know, the production designer found... Hospital green. Yeah, he was like going out and finding old computer parts and I, I went to a photo lab I use at one point when we were prepping and I called him up and said, there's a huge dumpster in the back of the photo lab full of like 70s computer stuff, like old IBM computers. And they went over there and pulled a bunch oh. of stuff out and... You know, and Spike was is completely hands-on with this stuff, so he was dealing with the design of those costumes right until we shot. He was really, deal, you know, dealing with the guy who had done Wild Things with him. His yep. name is Sonny. Um, designing them and figuring out, and how do we take the arm off, and what are the moving parts, and, you know, and even the design of the, the robots is, is meant to be kind of those gloves with the plastic fingers on them that look like mechanical hands were as low-tech as he could make them. So, no, there was no concern about how do we make it something else? That was, that was kind of the charm of it. It's like this guy gets off the same bus everyone else gets off, only there's a robot driving and he's a robot. We don't have to do anything else. It's fantastic. It's just a, such confident filmmaking. You know, it really is confident yeah. filmmaking because it just, uh, you shot it film, by the way? Yeah. Which 35 film. 35 film. Yeah, I mean, I also think that the style of it comes out of Yes, we had four and a half days, but maybe that's why Spike was drawn to me, is that there is a, there is a um, sparseness and a simplicity, the way the shots are put together. The light is all natural. Nothing feels, nothing feels like you're kind of manipulating the reaction you're getting yep. from people. You're yep. just, you're just I, I love when it feels found, but found beautiful and appropriate. You know? There's the sound bite. Um, <laughs> but let's, uh, like let's photojournalism uh, is kind of the cue for that stuff for me. Right. Like you don't, you don't look at photojournalism and say they must have lit that. You just go, man, they were in the right place at the right time. And I think when films feel that way, I, I stop thinking about anything but the story I'm there to watch. Well, let's talk about that in terms of in terms of the films that you shot, um, Capote. You know, sometimes you go back and you look at a film. I, I you know, I, I saw it in the theater, mm -hmm. and I still. The, the, the memory that came out of watching that movie for me was that, first of all, structurally, it sort of defies, like, narrative structure. It defies a lot of your expectations because these guys are found guilty uh, about 35 minutes into the movie, you right. know, or 40 minutes into the movie. It, really, the third act is just about Truman Capote himself slowly going into a quagmire of his own depression and self-centeredness. Self and also, it's, it's showing that he hasn't thought past this moment. Yeah, yeah. The ambition uh, has been leading all of his decisions and suddenly there are other elements in play as it unravels. Right, right. It, 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 it's, it's just a, a wonder, it's, it, it's completely compelling, but the, the one moment that I remembered from the theater, well, not, there were many, there was two. One is a beautiful dolly shot as they're walking into, into the courthouse and I think yes. it goes around it goes around up the steps, Philip up the steps. yeah, it goes around yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the whole thing just looks like this, like they were being invited into this proscenium area that, you know, that, that, that 
would look that way, but at the same time, it's just glorious, right? It's also his mo first moment in Kansas. It's, it's part of it is showing like the fish out of water, how he's dressed in that scene, which later comes into play when, when the cop looks at him and he's got the scarf on and yes. the bit with the hat and he says yes. Hermé about the scarf. And then at the end of the scene, the cop says Sears Roebuck about his hat. It's a great little punchline. Great little punchline. And the other, well, there's two more moments that I wanted to ask about. The, when he meets Clifton Collins Jr. for the first time, and he says, you know, they're in jail, and they're talking on opposite sides. In the, in the cell in the kitchen. The cell, yeah. It's in a kitchen, right? It's, it's in that a, weird cell it in the kitchen? kitchen of the, yeah, it's, it's like in the police station. Right. You know, in the, um, the police captain's house. Right. Right. It's the woman's cell that they're holding him in. So it's a weird. It's weird, yeah. but it's sparse. But what you what yeah. at the end of the scene, it says, and what he says, you know, you can tell a lot about people when you first meet them. And then I think uh, Hoffman says, uh, you know, and, and what do you notice about me? And he looks and it cuts. Right. And I kept on thinking there must have been a response line there. But the editing was just so. So. Yeah. So, but remember. that's the movie. The, the editing is so it's so deftly cut. Yeah. Right. Um, did you guys have to on that mo on that film? Was it necessary to sort of work around visually making Philip Seymour Hoffman look tiny? For sure. I mean, there's a scene where he's in a robe on, in front of it. It's a gorgeous there's paisley, hotel room. Hotel yeah. room. There's sort of paisley in color yeah, and color and he and Catherine Keener. Yeah, and it looks like it, I'm like, he's not really that short, is he? Like, he's well, a, it's you know. everything. I mean, he fills a lot bigger than Truman was. Right. And so whenever we have him with other people, he's there on boxes. If you look at the opening party done in New York, he's telling a story to a lot of people. Yep. And he's the smallest one there. Yep. But everybody else is raised in the room. And, you know, it's a bunch of different things you do. It has to do with wardrobe. It has to do with the angles you shoot. It has to do with the height of other people. It has to do with camera angles. If you look down a little bit at somebody, they feel smaller, right? And it's always relative. I mean, that's why no one knows how big actors are until they see them in public. So you had to play this the whole time. Yeah, and I mean, costume design, lighting, lensing, blocking—all of those things come into play. And there were times when, I mean, ideally, you sell that stuff early in the film, and then you stop. You know, you, you know, a character introduction, first few times, first time we see him next to Nell. So we really need to know what the relationship is between them, and then we do try to maintain it. There's, there's a scene where they pull up to the house and park a car and get out, and and Truman walks forward, and then Nell walks forward behind him and stops, and she's quite a bit taller than him. There's a little ramp of boxes for her, you know, so she can only walk where we put the boxes down. But I think if you sell that a few times early on, it stops becoming as much of a. Is that nerve-wracking at all doing that? Like. Yeah, we I were mean, all concerned about that. Yeah, because, because like you're Phil doing this, you're like, I hope this looks right, you know. But and also, consistency is important. Right. Nothing's worse than when one moment jumps out because it's not like the others. But, but we all paid attention to it, and um, everybody was aware of the concern, and we all knew Phil was the person that was going to play this part from the beginning. So, everything we did was designed to sort of make that not an issue. And you don't really know if it's working, but you do everything you can do, and. I remember seeing an ad, I think it was in Variety, asking for a nomination for you for Academy Award for Cinematography. I don't think I ever saw that ad. I actually. saw it. Because I had people say to me after that film, you, you know, the movie was not really, it, it wasn't released in a way that they supported the technical aspects. So it got all the five major nominations, but a few people came up to me and said, 
I voted for you, but you know, the film was such a tiny film and it had such a small release at first. Normally people have to decide up front, you know, put the money in, make the awareness there. So I never saw that ad, but that was I my first time getting close I to that I think it, I think it quoted one, um, it quoted one review that said with his black, really black blacks and da 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 da. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that. That's, I didn't, I didn't yeah. realize that was an academy solicitation, but I remember there was an amazing review that talked specifically about the tones of the film and the yeah. photography. Well, the, I, the, the, the proof is that I didn't know that review. I just remember seeing the ad, and I agreed with yeah. it. I thought, oh, this really should get, yeah. you know. But it's it's one of those films that you can see why, because of the thinking involved and yeah. what people interpret as cinematography why sometimes it gets missed or whatever yeah I'm a, it's done really well for me I mean it's the film it, it's that and never let me go are the two films people tend to pull out and say th those are the films that I found your work through or, and, and a film called Jesus Son as well that that's had a nice shelf life tell us about that well that's 12 13 years ago now mm -hmm. no 14 years Going ago this film. year yeah tiny un two, under two million dollar 28 day what's it about it is a Dennis Johnson short story collection, mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's a single narrative film that tries to take all of these short stories and connect them in a kind of non-linear way, mm -hmm. um, much more so in the original script than the finished film. I think the last third of the film is very linear now, but the script that we were working with was this disjointed, jumping forward and backward in time, recurring characters, just a DP dream and also set in the 70s against a drug culture background and in the Midwest, although we shot it all in Pittsburgh, um, Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. And it's, it's great place uh, to shoot Philadelphia, by the amazing. way, but just visually, it's like amazing. I think people from L.A. go there and go like this. Is, it isn't New York and it's clearly not New York, but it's and got also such a great it, architecture. The, there's a time warp where there was yeah. at that point. I haven't shot anything in those areas since, but yeah, I mean, it was just right for that film. The trains, the elevated trains there are so specific and yeah. beautiful. Like in New York, everything's much newer and has been for a long time, but there you could find these old trains with graffiti and lights that flickered on and off and incredible locations, hmm. really, the right place for that film. But, you know, that's a Is there a sequence a in that, sorry, Jesus' Son? Mm -hmm. Is there a sequence in there that you really love the look of the most? Or? The train sequence in that film for me, um, and I haven't watched it in a long time, but... There's, a, there's several times when he rides on the train and he's always in a state of emotional despondency. And the train becomes this sort of train ride to hell and the lights are flickering on and off and there are characters that are in the shadows and very very shady and he winds up following one of them and it becomes a whole other... I mean, it, it's a kind of dark journey of the soul and what we were able to do on film with no resources and, and no time feels like that to me. So when I think of that film and I think of the, the things visually that work the best, that's the top of it. There, there were things we shot for the film, even though we only had 28 days, we shot a movie that was over three hours in the first assembly. So there's like a movie and a half in 28 days. And some of the stuff that did not make the cut was some of my favorite stuff. That was always a hard one. It took me a while to just kind of look at the movie for what it was rather than for what it could have been, or you know, I think the film's great. It holds up really well. But there were some sequences that we worked on with a lot of great ideas behind it them just that just just didn't fit. You know, such is the nature of the knife, right? Yeah. But it's funny when it's a 28-day shoot and you're working so hard to get the script on pa uh, that's on paper on film, 
you feel like you fought that much har harder for it. And so right. it ought to be in the movie. How many days to shoot Capote? 30. It's pretty really short. Still pretty. 30, I think 30 in Canada, and then we got a uh, day in L.A. We to do what's We were in Saskatchewan Spain. or Manitoba. We were or? in... Um, we were in... I'm trying not to remember, actually. <laughs> um, we were in Winnipeg. Yeah. Oh, Winnipeg. Uh, oh, yeah. Flat as, uh, flat as piss on a plate. Yeah, and right up until Christmas. So we, we got snow just at the tail end of it. I mean, it was kind to us compared to what Winnipeg winters are like. Winnipeg winters are horrendous. Horrendous. And at one point, they were trying to sell Winnipeg as what was going to be the Chicago of the North. That was the original yeah, well idea. They got the wind. Yeah, they got the wind part right. And that I don't was, know about anything else. There's like one building downtown with four yeah. stories, that's, that's and the rest of it is just kind of like... Yeah, and it's very frozen in time. It's yeah. Like, for our film, it couldn't have been better. If you look at a map where Holcomb, Kansas is, and you draw a straight line up, there's Winnipeg. Right. So geographically, it's really similar. It's the plains, the mountains are a thousand miles to the west. Right. It gets similar weather and similar light. Yeah. And, and western Kansas is as modern looking as, you know, there's no place in the U.S. that doesn't have all the signs of the new millennium all over it. So right. even if we had the money to shoot there, it would have been really hard. So you shot in Winnipeg and then you had a few more days. We had a day in L.A. I think it was one day. It might, it might have been two days to do what's supposed to be Spain. You know, the, the yep. Cost, Costa Brava and the house and the whole, whole end of the film. And then we wrapped the movie. And then um, several months into editing, Bennett had always wanted the introduction scene at the New York party introduction of Capote. Um, but he was quite well into editing. And we did a commercial in New York together. And I took the camera home from the commercial to my apartment and I shot all the water towers and New York skylines and there's a shot. You just grabbed a, a like I shot a, out my windows. That's with an Aton or something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I think we I had a, an Arri cam or whatever. I, I think I used on the commercial what I needed to match the film, the same lenses. And I shot everything that's New York City exterior I did on my own in either from my apartment or I drove over to New Jersey and knocked on somebody's door and asked if I could take a picture from their roof, I think is how I phrased it. And they were like, yeah, you can go to the roof. And I got on the roof, and I was able to frame the Manhattan skyline so that there was nothing modern in it. So it didn't require any <laughs> painting out. And somewhere in the film, I think, it's, uh, I think it's right in the beginning, when you meet Truman at the party, you see this beautiful east-looking view of the skyline in late twilight, and you see the New Yorker building and the Empire State Building and nothing that shouldn't be there in this frame. And we didn't do any digital effects. It just was framed. There it is. Yeah, and the guy let me on his roof, and I went up there at twilight and shot that. You went up there, you looked at it, F4, and yeah. that was so it. I found the frame with the yeah. lens that allowed us to not have to do any digital work and, and shot it. Um, Tremendous. Yeah, I mean, that, that film's really, it was small, and it has a, um, and I mean this in a good way, a really handmade feel to it. Yeah, but beautifully handmade. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's that's yeah. right. It's like yeah. all of the, um, the exteriors in Canada, the blowing wheat fields and the, the yep. tree skylines and the barn. Farm and house. Yeah, I mean, I did all of that stuff in one afternoon solo, like not even with a camera assistant. I was loading mags in the back of my rental car, building the camera in a wheat field and shooting all that stuff in one afternoon in pre-production. And it wound up being this library of stuff that Bennett pulled from, and, and there was a lot of it. I got a great day with perfect weather, like a storm rolled in, and I got all this dramatic sky stuff, and the row of dead trees that's used right after the so you you're you're driving around now. Why don't we just go over this because this is something that's actually fascinating. Um, you know how how do you 
this really is as much about still photography as it is about motion picture photography because you're seeing photographs. Yes. You know, that have motion. Those to are them. all still, I mean, they're all still images. There's right. no camera movement at all. Right. But yeah, I mean, that was just, that was. What do you look for when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're driving around? Is it just, is it just you either have a knack to well, find Well, we, because it was pre-production, we didn't have a lot figured out yet. In fact, interesting side note, I had felt strongly about shooting two, three, five to one for that film. Which you did. Which I did. Yeah. But at that point in pre-production, it had not been decided on. There was an expense, and it was an expense that wasn't budgeted. It's all about the deliverables, baby. Exactly. It's all, all, all comes down to post. Yeah. Somebody and will call and go, I, if I could deliver two versions instead of three, it would really save my, my well, life. Well, that's and, changed now yeah. because of DIs. But at that point, yeah. it was that's a photochemical finish, that yeah. film. Oh, it was? And, yeah. No DI? Like, no. Nothing. Just straight? There's one visual effect shot in the whole film, I believe. One visual effect shot in the whole film. Yeah. Rest so everything's in camera. Literally, the New York stuff, if there was a problem building in the frame, we didn't shoot it because we didn't have the, to paint the, the budget to say, like, we'll fix it later. So we Was it spherical or was it anamorphic? It's super 35 spherical. Okay, so, so go ahead. So that being said, it had not been decided. They hadn't agreed to shoot super 35 yet. Mm -hmm. So I went out with a camera and lenses, which we sort of begged for in advance. I had four or five lenses camera, a mag, a couple batteries, and a changing bag, and drove out to, Bennett and I had found that house, that is the house where the murder takes place, maybe a week before this moment I'm talking about. And we're probably still two weeks from shooting. So I went out to that property and shot a bunch of landscape stuff there in the wheat fields. The reason I did it was that the wheat was gonna be cut, and we knew that. So it was sort of like, we don't know what format the movie is. I shot it for Super 35 knowing that I was going to lose part of my composition if we decided to go 185. But I was sort of framing it with the idea that, okay, it's still flat, and I, they'll pull the frame, and I'll make sure. So I went out and shot it knowing that maybe it'll be this format, maybe it'll be the other, maybe it'll be helpful for the movie. And we got the stuff processed. I think it was the only footage we printed on the whole movie. Like, we called it a test, and Technicolor made a print. Right. And Oh, Technicolor fees. Yeah, we were like, <laughs> come on, it's a test. Right. And I don't know that we projected it. I don't remember the details, but, but you I got do a remember I got, a, I got a DVD of it transferred, and I showed it to Bennett, and he, it was the first images for the movie, and he looked at it and said, you just set the bar really high. Like, it was the first moment when he went, there's the movie. Right. There's the palette we've been talking about. There's the feeling. There's the, you know, there are the images. And... When I think about that movie, and obviously it's different for me than someone who's seen it once or twice, but when I think about it, that stuff is a huge part of what the movie feels like. That feeling of the, the planes and the wind and the weather and the sparseness and the stillness Sparse. and the, the quietness. There's shots of trees with birds yeah. taking off. and He uses it all through the film, yeah. but it was all done in one afternoon. Yeah. There's another moment, uh, well, I, I, to, to, to respond to what you're saying, it, it, it is a huge part of the feeling of the movie. Um, again, I had to go back and look at it. It's lost nothing. It, it loses nothing. It just feels like a beautifully photographed movie. And, uh, well, there's a few questions I want to ask, but the first one is the sequence in which um, Capote convinces uh, whatever newspaper publication to allow him to use a, a fashion photographer. The New Yorker. The New Yorker right. to photograph these guys with a fashion photographer have to imagine is a little bit nerve-wracking for a DP because now you're trying to emulate a situation with a light that's diegetic, it's in the story world, or the, you know, right. and, and, and you're also hearkening back to 
a famous fashion photographer. I don't know if the sequence ever actually happened, but it's just how Dick Abaddon shot those stills. So did you shoot all, you shot all those stills, obviously, or your Um, guy? No, I think in the end, I mean, I had a Hasselblad, which is my camera, which by the way is not true to the history of it. He shot with a Rolleiflex. A Rolly. We got bad advice from the research department on that. Use a Hasselblad. Yeah. And the sound I, of that it, just ruins the, the whole sound of it gives it away. Yeah. You can hear that Hasselblad shutter. Right. Um, no, the stills were done several times, but I didn't actually shoot while we were doing that. It was hard enough lighting the scene, right. then being in the scene. I was. What's funny about that is that in the close-ups, I'm holding not the Hasselblad but a video monitor, so I can watch Bennett's framing because he's now operating the camera. So I'm watching the shot of me behaving like I'm shooting stills. In the wide shots, I have the Hasselblad in my hand, so it was kind of a circus that day. And I was, right. I was, um, I think Spike Jones was going to play that part actually. You're going to play the the photographer. He was going to play Avedon, and the timing didn't work, and you had to get work permits to fly people in as actors. So Phil you, was you, the Phil Hoffman's the one that wound up saying he, he was friends with Dick, and they had just done a shoot together before the movie, and he wound up saying to me, "You should do this." And I was like, "I don't look anything like him, and I'm kind of busy shooting the movie." And he's like. You should do it. It's the right, you know, instead of putting an actor in there and teaching him how to hold a camera, you're a photographer, you have the energy of Abaddon, get in there, so. But you did take the stills that are in that sequence of the... I don't think so. Who took I actually think we shot them separately because I think, uh, I think they were shot on 35 film on a more modern camera, probably the unit photographer. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember. We did it on the day. I do know that. So you used the light that you had already presented? Yeah. Right. Which was gorgeous. We lit it as a photo shoot. Right. And then I think we just did it in stages. And when when you're lighting that photo shoot, are you trying to emulate the look of the actual... The pictures, which he had put a white backdrop or a a soft gray backdrop up for and lit them, yeah, in his style for sure. And so it's funny. We mentioned Savidis earlier, Harris Savidis, obviously. uh, the master, uh, you know, but I compare that to the sequence in Milk, yes. which he shot, which is yes. very similar. Similar. It's about a camera store, yeah, James Franco completely. and uh, I think Sean Penn Sean shooting Penn. each other yeah. with, 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 um, with cameras. And, you know, both sequences are gorgeous, you know. Yeah, I love that sequence. I, I had forgotten about that, but yeah. They're very, but it, but it was it was just you know it, I think that sequence is sort of emulates for me the confidence of the photography of the movie, because it just happens and it feels gorgeous and 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 when the stills of the shots, of the characters come up on the screen, mm-hmm. it, is about the time what was happening the characters it just pushes yeah. this, everything, forward. Yeah, you know? it just pulls one moment out and analyzes it too. I mean, because you see the lead into it, and then there's a freeze, and it's the photo, but it's within the sequence. So yeah, and that's how Abaddon worked. You know, he would talk to people. He wouldn't look through the camera. He would either have a shutter release, or he would hold it in his hand, so he would make eye contact and talk to them. And that's how all his candid stuff turned. You know, turned out to be. So you had to say that dialogue. You know, with we were ad libbing that. There was nothing written. I think I was just throwing lines. Because you were rather manipulative, weren't you? Who do you call first, your mother or your father? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that was not scripted. I didn't think they were going to use it, to be honest. I thought that the scene would just play out over the sound effects of the, you know, there, there was no discussion of like, talk to them, we're going to use your voice. So it just worked out for Bennett to do that. But yeah, I think that that was just um, to catch them off guard and get a sort of 
you know, candid moment. And if you look at the Abaddon pictures, you know, there are these moments when he's showing his tattoos, but there's also these moments where these guys look like kids, you know, and you wonder what they were talking about. So I think I was just trying to create something that felt alive. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked because I think that uh, the actor who plays Dick Hickok, I remember when I said that to him, he, 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 he was a little thrown by it, you know? I think that was the idea. That was fantastic. Um, let's talk about your approach to lighting. Because you mentioned that really your approach to lighting first is to first uh, get the framing right and get the, get, the, get the lensing right. Yeah. And then, you know. But is, is there a consistency in your work of sort of a naturalist? Uh, I hate using the term naturalism because, you know, it, but, it, it's a kid Jerry Rig yeah. term. But, but is there a consistency in your work about making things feel natural but at the same time? Okay, well, let me be more specific. In the courtroom, mm -hmm. I'd have a hard time figuring out where the light is coming from, mm -hmm. both in the terms of the story and in terms, you know, yeah. it does. It's not distracting at all, but it is not boring. It's gorgeous. So, what is the difference between the guy? What is the difference between the DP shooting TV, where everything looks flat and even and just it's not interesting at all? And what you're doing, where I, I cannot tell what the light, but it looks totally gorgeous. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, we only know our process. But for me, once you know the movie you're making and what you want it to feel like, those things start to inform all your choices. Mm -hmm. So do you want it dramatic? Do you want shafts of light from the window? Do you want top soft light? And if so, how contrasty? How pooled is that light? Those are all, and, and what does the location lend itself to? I seem to remember that that courtroom is a lot of wood, but I think it has light-colored walls in the back. Yep. And, and also, what fits in the schedule and the budget and all of that. <laughs> right, so, right. you know, you're balancing all of those things in, in any lighting setup. But I think, interestingly, the scene that Bennett and I struggled the most with, the most with in our blocking and shot listing was the courtroom, for exactly the reason you just said, because... You get in there two or three times, you have these pages of dialogue, mm -hmm. you have all these eye lines you need to know. Where's Truman? Where's Nell? Where are the killers? There's the jury, there's the judge, there's the bystanders. Like, you got to lay the room out in a way that's clear, and you, you don't want to change the style of the movie, which is to be very much on the people we care about. Suddenly, the people we care about in that scene has expanded enormously. So you don't want to suddenly have a lot more coverage and... So that's issue number one, and then you need to be able to move through your day. I think that courtroom stuff was one day, so you need to be able to move through wardrobe changes and all. You know, it was the whole movie was fairly fast. So the decision to top light seemed like a natural one to not try to light from the windows, and and then within that, for me, you have wardrobe. You're seeing a room full of people for the first time in that wardrobe the day you shoot. So you're dealing with the costume designer closely. You know what those palettes are. You know what the set is. You know what the art department can do for you to help with whatever issues you have and what they can't do. Can't paint the walls in the courtroom. So you factor all of that stuff in and out of that, holding a big space for what is this film? What are we trying to make it feel like? What does the rest of the movie look like? You hold that space as much as you can with all these other elements into it. In that case, I went with the sort of Gordon Willis pooled, skirted top lights. I put them over the places where we decided the people we cared about were going to sit. 
or not. Sometimes you want people not in the light. A little darker. You want the people behind them lit so that they feel more. So I, I can only answer that by saying you try to balance all of the things that are moving parts, but the thing that you anchor them to is what do you want it to feel like? And what you said is sort of, that's what I wanted it to feel like. I didn't want it to be distracting. I didn't want it to feel like, you know, shafts of light through smoky windows. Like, I wanted it to feel in the period and within the palette and not distracting but not flat. I wanted there to be drama in it. And it was probably the hardest thing for us to, to decide about blocking in and maybe for lighting. Because, you know, if you go to the execution. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, that, it was exactly what I was going to talk about. The hanging, the execution, probably the most dramatically lit thing in the movie. Right. And I took liberties there because it's in a warehouse. It's, it was at night, that execution. And so you that can justify needed, that row of. Uh, yeah. And that for me, that just needed to feel like what I imagined that, you know, it's bitter cold. You can see people's breath. You know, it just falls off into blackness everywhere. Things are not, it's not a theatrical presentation. It's, you know, it's utilitarian light and it's, it's a somber mood. So I took liberties in that of like, what are the lights? How poorly are they? Where do we expose it? I mean, one of my favorite moments in that is this moment where you see all these men turn and look and a, a light sweeps across their faces and it's the car headlight arriving with the killers in it for the execution. It's just one of those moments where in the course of blocking it, you know, there's a big open garage door, there's mm -hmm. snow outside, we put a searchlight effect outside so you feel it continually sweeping because it's the prison grounds. So we played with that a little bit. Then there was this moment where Bennett and I were just like, let's, let's have a light sweep across their face. And to me, it's one of those moments where the whole movie just sort of changes tone in that, in that beat. Found, you know, in, in the circumstance, one of those. That's very Conrad Hall. Yeah, I learned a lot from listening to him talk about how he arrived at things. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I just had this conversation with someone on set the other day. When I'm lighting something, even if I have it figured out down to the last single piece of equipment, I never walk away. I never say, yeah, put the light up, I'll come back. You know, I, I stay and watch because sometimes someone turns on a light that's on a low stand, aimed the wrong way, and you see something. Sometimes they raise the light or before it's diffused or colored or pointed where you want it to, you see something you wouldn't have thought of. In fact, all the time. Or before you get in there and balance and finesse, you see something in a raw state and it, it sometimes winds up being great. You Just know, like that. Great head start on, yeah, all the time. I mean, you put a light up in a crane, when that light starts moving up there, even though you're waiting for it to get to where you asked for it, you have a thousand chances to see something you wouldn't have thought of. And I say stop. That. Yes, all the time. Very cool. Um, why don't you tell me about your favorite, your, your most most prized sequence in uh, Never Let Me Go? Um, I would have to say that there there's only one set in that film, and it's the dorm room mm -hmm. where the kids sleep. And there's a sequence where the movie transitions from the 12 or 13-year-old kids to the 18-year-old kids. And we did it in that dorm room. After you've seen um, several scenes play out there, Kathy is sitting alone on the bed looking through this little box of the only possession she owns. And in the course of seeing her going through the box, looking at her hand, opening it, and coming back to the wider shot, she becomes an 18-year-old version of the character. And it's played empty except for her in very never-let-me-go, somber light. 
and there's two wide shots when she stands up to walk out, and it's kind of the end of a sequence, end of act two of the film, and, um, sorry, end of act one, beginning of act two, and I just felt in the end like everything worked together. The, the design of the set, which we all were very involved in, the art direction, the palette, um, the lighting, the camera placement, the, the whole thing, when I look at that sequence, I just feel like if I could do it ten more times, I don't know what I would change. <laughs> and, and that that's, <laughs> that's, not, a, that's, that's a big not deal. That's not something we get to say very often. No, yeah. no. It's, it's almost like, I have to say, yeah. uh, well, editors, I don't think, ever feel done so much as that they have to abandon it. Just to, to stop. Exactly. Um, but cinematographers, I don't, I think, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't envy your positions because you guys you feel the permanence. Yeah. You know, you turn over the camera. When someone says, check the gate, there's always some part of you thinking, did I really? Did I get, it? Did I get yeah. everything I can out of this moment and yeah. opportunity? Yeah. Always. Um, when you worked with Mark Romanek, we're talking about a guy who's directed more, like, the greatest music videos, you yeah. know, and I'm assuming just from what I've read and about him and in just intuition and also seeing one hour photo mm -hmm. that he knows more about photography than you know yeah he, he's forgotten more about photography than a lot of people know yeah um, what is that is it what is, is that like is that the case is it is it like you know he's he's interesting in that he is incredibly detail-oriented in everything that he gets involved in but he's also very solicitous. One of the things about Mark's career that I find astonishing is that he finds people at the right point to do the work that he wants them to do, and then I think they do their best work with him. I mean, not their best work of their career, but look at Harris's arc with, with him. You know, look at all the people. Look at the art directors. Look at the set designers that he's worked with. I think he raises everybody's game, not just because the opportunity is presented, but because he has an eye for seeing you're ready for something else. Let's find it together. He doesn't lay it out for you. I mean, Mark did not put that opportunity in front of me in detail. He put it in front of me because he, we did three or four commercials together in the year before it. We actually came close to working on a film together that didn't happen. Um, and, and when I say came close, I mean came almost to the point where we agreed to do it, even though there was no it yet. We met, we hung out, we talked about it. Had it happened, we probably would have done it together, but we didn't begin any prep or anything on it. That was that film, A Million Little Pieces, the book that James Fry. Okay. The book, the guy that got sort of outed for having written an autobiography that was not an autobiography, it was fiction. Oh, right, right, yeah, I remember this right. big deal. A Million Little Pieces, drug story. An Oprah scandal. And exactly. All. Yeah, right. which I didn't understand why it was such Well, a only because I think deal. it had been presented as factual, yeah. and it was a pretty... So was Fargo. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I guess, yeah. I guess, so if you have a history a of being go, a poet, this happened to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it turns out that it didn't. I found the, I found the reaction to it more interesting than the actual act of it. Yeah. It was like, you know, so, so does that mean the story was less engaging? You know, I guess the guy lied. Fine, throw well, him in jail. You know? I, I agree. On yeah, some level, yeah, I yeah, feel like yeah. that was just fodder for daytime television yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, if there's a guarantee, if somebody says this is truthful and this happened. I guess people want to believe that. So is that what blew that movie up? Yeah. Yeah, we were in discussions You were in discussions it. about oh, yeah. it? Mark Romanek was going to make oh, the movie? Oh, that story broke on a Friday and like by Monday. Not only was that movie not yeah. happening, but yeah, the whole, the book, for, you know, the whole thing exploded. See, I think, yeah. I think you should have made the movie anyway with a documentary component about how none of it was real. 
I think there are some stories that don't hold up if you don't say this really happened. I think that's become overused. Like so many movies now, you see in the beginning, it's like this inspired, is based on a truth. Yeah, but, when, but I think some stories, yeah. like if you want to go deep and dark into yeah. the, the drug abuse world, you can go deeper and darker than that book went. It kind of lands in a place where you go, wow, this is a white middle class kid and this happened to him. That's interesting in its own way. But if it's like, this is his wildest imagination, it falls flat a little bit. Ah, uh-huh. I see what you're saying. You know so what I mean? Like yeah, you the, go the, really the context. Dark. Yeah, you have yeah, to go to a yeah. place where you say, wow, his imagination is yeah. more vivid than, than the general public's to make that interesting. Otherwise, it's more that, you know, yeah, it's a I unique s- story. I see what you're saying. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, no, you, you sold Especially in, in that sort of world. It's like, yeah. you know, you go into Requiem for a Dream and you don't go, this is a true story. You yeah. say, wow, this is a vision of hell, of, of what addiction is about and how dark it gets. Yeah. And if you're going to tell a true story, it has some very specific things in it that are, that are only interesting in relation to that character and that time and that journey. You know, and he was like a, a, an unlikely guy to go into, to wind up in a crack house with a bunch of, you know, Detroit underworld crime figures shooting and snorting drugs. You know, he, he just was an unlikely guy because right. it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> so anyway, that's like felt, the movie. Right, exactly. So that <laughs> fell apart. Uh, yeah. But Mark and I had met on that, and then yeah. he started asking me to do some commercial work with him. We did, um, we did some Nike spots. We did a black and white, really classic black and white. You shoot a lot of commercials. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how m- about how many a year are you shooting? I've t- I've knocked it down a bit now because it was it was too much. But I don't know how many commercials, but but probably a hundred days. So a hundred days a year. Hundred days. That's one in every three days. Mm-hmm. And when you take out the weekends, that's yeah. I mean, I'm on a job right now that's three weeks straight. That I'm just, I'm still, I'm actually on it right now. Really? Yeah. For a commercial. Um, for a commercial. What are you shooting? Uh, ESPN, but we shot New York, LA, New York, LA, and we're back in New York next week. Shooting tomorrow here, back in New York next week to finish it. What? It's tie-ins with players and with okay. uh, Channing Tatum and Jamie Fox who are in this movie White House Down who just tied into ESPN promos for the movie so we had to shoot them in New York on their schedule and different players in the other cities for their schedules. Um, technical jobs, you know, there's a lot of green screen. I've spoken with other um, DPs who when they talks about commercial and they have the benefit of going nameless. But you, you're here now, so you, you may you may you may not want to agree to this. We all do it. Yeah. Okay. But but no no not just shooting commercials. I asked the D, the, the DP that I'm thinking of specifically. I said, do you just use commercials as your chance? Because there's an expectation with commercials that it's got to be big and it's got to yeah. be yeah. So I said, do you just use that as your opportunity to play around with the big stuff? And when you go to make a movie, you sort of really you know if it needs no light, you use no light. Yeah. Is that have you ever experienced that? I think each thing has to have its own. I mean, sometimes I do a lot of European commercials, and in Europe, oh really? Yeah, a lot. You get flown out to Paris or yeah, all over the place. And for for about twelve years, I've had agents in Paris, and I've worked with a lot of directors uh, in the states that were European, and it started feeding toward that work for me. And I really preferred it for a while because they're a little bit more like short films, and as a DP, you get a lot more prep time, and you're more involved all the way through it. And I had been shooting a lot of commercials in LA for about seven or eight years and with great directors and working back to back to back. So the European stuff felt more 
It felt different without completely abandoning commercials. So I balanced it out with that quite a while ago, like 10 years ago. And, and I try to live in New York when I can. So it's easier to go to Europe for one job and LA for the next. If you live here, it's really, it's just exhausting to try to fly 15 hours to do a job. Right. So I balance it out. I look at it that there are feature films, there are American commercials, there are European commercials. I think each one of those has great things about it and things that if you were only doing it, you would not like so much. So yeah, sometimes it's a chance to try out toys and equipment and locations and techniques. And other times, it's just, it doesn't need to be any of those things. It's just a director you like, or a challenging project, or a cool location, or a lot of money. You know, those are all things that factor into. Right. And I'm pretty picky about scripts. I mean, I, I never have taken a movie because I need to work, you know? For me, it's such a privilege to make films, and it's such a deliberate choice. What movie, at what time, with what people. Right. And I never know what that's going to be, so I like to try to say, yeah, if your $1.8 million script is the best thing I've read and I love all the things you put together for it, then I can afford to do it because I've been supplementing that with, with a livelihood. I haven't been waiting for 10 months for a script and now I need to get paid to do it, you know, more money than you have. So I, I think they all complement each other and I, I consider it separate careers, but, but it's a privilege to do all of that stuff, you know. Even this ESPN thing, it's like... It's fun. I love the director, and everyone working on it is cool. I have my crew here, my crew in New York. There's no downside to it. Adam Gimmel, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to have you. Yeah, that was easy. Uh, uh, I, I, was we try and make it painless, man. I don't know if that uh, if you read that. No, the painful part is just knowing you're going to sit in front of cameras with lights pointed at you. But <laughs> the, the conversation was easy. Thank yeah. you.